Hello and welcome to our Maritime Impact podcast series. I'm your host, Eric Nyhus, Director Environment for Maritime at DNB. We have tended to focus on the impact of various key regulations across a range of regions on the podcast, but today we'll take a broader view and ask how the regulators can help to make more and greener fuels available to the maritime industry in support of its journey towards decarbonization. To do this, I've invited Eirik Ovrum, the lead author of DNV's Maritime Forecast to 2050, onto the podcast to dig into the details. The report presents an updated outlook on regulations, drivers, technologies, and fuel availability. From that, a new and extended fuel mix scenario library has been created, with each scenario describing a possible future fleet composition, its energy use and fuel mix, and emissions towards 2050. We hope you enjoy the episode, and now, on to the show! So, Eirik, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on board, and we are going to be diving into an exciting topic today. Well, thank you, Eirik. Thank you for having me. Uh, as uh, always, I look forward to uh, discussing this with you. To start off, can you please tell us a bit about the results of the maritime forecast, especially from the chapter looking at the drivers and regulations for decarbonization? Well, Eirik, uh, the latest modeling results of the uh, DNV's maritime forecast to 2050 once again confirmed that the regulatory policies and the primary energy prices are key drivers for the uptake of different carbon neutral fuels and the future fuel mix. So we have uh, developed this year 24 different scenarios to explore two different decarbonization pathways. And the results show that uh, the use of carbon neutral fuels needs to pick up in the 2030s reaching about 40% of the carbon of the fuel mix in 2050 under the current IMO emissions, and of course 100% in the fuel mix to decarbonize shipping fully. And this uh, nicely underlines the correlation between the regulatory emissions and how much carbon neutral fuels will be needed to reach the goals. And the Current numbers of uh, alternative fuel uptake is uh, dominated by uh, that we see in the order book by uh, both by number of ships and the size of ships. Gross tonnage, we see that there is a significant uptake of LNG as uh, as fuel or as uh, being uh, alternative uh, fuel for propulsion. And uh, on the other hand, we see that there is uh, not enough. Uh, diverse uh, fuel infrastructure in place that can supply the other types of fuels. And so we have, do not really have the plans to supply all these carbon neutral fuels for, for the, these vessels yet. A way that national and international regulators can help to get the uh, amounts of fuel needed uh, to, and to make sure that it becomes available to, as the, to the ship owners as they need to follow the regulations that are coming into place. Well, you know, it, it, it's a hard question in many ways because uh, it, it really boils down to how do you create the right frame conditions? Uh, because determining the exact amount of fuel necessary, it, it's obviously an uncertain business, as we both know very well. Uh, we, of course, we, we do have that figure of a 5% by 2030 in our own forecast as a minimum necessary if we're going to be on track for the transition. But contributing to creating those conditions that create the market pull for the alternatives. I mean, that, that's very much in the wheelhouse of the regulators as far as, uh, uh, the, as far as I can see it, at least. 
and, and as, as we both know, um, what we see happening internationally at the IMO and regionally in the EU is that we have this kind of two-prong approach emerging, where we have one aspect, is, which is a drive to establish some form of carbon pricing, um, incentivizing through price mechanisms, uptake of low or zero carbon fuels. And we have that other aspect with the rollout of the more technical greenhouse gas intensity standard uh, approach uh, for fuels, which essentially will mandate some kind of reductions of the footprint of whatever fuel is burned by the ship. And the EU is ahead at the moment, as we know, they're rolling out both MEETS, the emission trading system, and if you EU maritime regulation. But the IMO is also going to be making key decisions on similar approaches come summer next year. Now, there are obviously myriad questions that can be raised from the technical details of the regs to what the price implications will be, to who ends up paying, and of course, the question of how or if overlapping regional and international regulations will be aligned. So the, the regulators have a lot of work ahead of them. Uh, 2023 is going to be a crucial uh, year when it comes to making these key decisions that kind of shape and maybe allows us as well to narrow down our 24 scenarios. But when you start to, start to think about what can be done from the industrial perspective here, um, as, and as our our CEO keeps saying, uh, collaboration is the uh, the fuel of the future. We have to have cross collaboration across uh, sectors, across companies, across uh, segments in the industry. Now, the, when you think about collaboration, what do you think it should look like? How do you how do you start with it? Did the report come up with any examples or suggestions of how we can proceed with that? Well, it's, this is a large, uh, not only a large uh, endeavor, but also a crucial question to ask. And we haven't done uh, much about this in the report this year. Hopefully, we'll get some more next year. But um, we see that this, this has to be done bit by bit, port by port and production facility by production facility, ship by ship, and uh, critically, even contract by contract between all the different stakeholders uh, in uh, all of this. And the uh, green corridor is used as a term, and uh, I guess it, there is some confusion as to what people uh, mean by this, but uh, in my understanding at least, uh, th this is a green corridor is a way of starting this process somewhere. So you have to get the uh, ship owners to to have contracts. You have to have a production facility for this. You have to have uh, uh, regulations uh, agreed upon and uh, maybe pre preferential benefits from the governments in this area and so on. And, and you need to have uh, some agreements between two ports and at least one ship. And that could be a, a, the, the simplest green corridor to hammer out the details of contracts and agreements that you need in order to actually provide the carbon neutral fuels for this ship, or one or more ships, I would say, rather. And then in Norway, we have this uh, green shipping program, and I've been uh, working in several projects here. Yeah, so this it's, is a meeting place in Norway, uh, and a forum for industry, where technology is being discussed, of course. Uh, both for ships and for production of fuel, essentially. I think uh, most crucially in this respect is that the green shipping program is connecting the different stakeholders and working towards making uh, bonds and uh, between uh, cargo owners, fuel producers, and ship owners to actually start sailing green. 
And of course, we also have the government and uh, regulations and incentives all being thrown into the mix. So uh, I think in, in Norway, this uh, green shipping program uh, and the, is, is an essential component of this uh, cooperation is the co- cooperation and the partnership with the government. So hope, hopefully then we can start with one small green corridor and you can identify all the different hurdles that you need to overcome and also you find solutions that work bit by bit, step by step green corridor by green corridor hopefully that's the way to eat this uh, elephant piece by piece not literally but metaphorically we also see that uh, eric and proposals have started coming forward on what types of regulations or what we can implement to actually achieve the strategy ambitions of the imo and uh, here in norway a lot of uh, people have been discussing uh, co2 price so in the IMO, this is called uh, market-based measures, which aim to set the price on CO2 or greenhouse gas emissions, either well-to-wake or, or tank-to-wake. So this would uh, hopefully then create an incentive for ship owners and the industry to reduce emissions. What kind of impact do you think these market-based measures or CO2 price in some way can have on fuel availability and how? That, that, that's a that's a biggie in many ways. Uh, we know we, we already touched on this and I've talked about this, I guess, a bit on previous episodes as well. But of, of course, uh, the basic idea here is that you compensate for the higher cost of alternative fuels by imposing costs on emissions of the lower cost fuels in that sense, uh, trying to balance out uh, the, the, the price picture. Um, in an ideal world, this will, of course, create a market uh, demand for alternatives and will get some more certainty and make it more attractive for fuel suppliers to invest in providing those alternatives and so on and so forth. Now, the, the big question, of course, is what kind of emission price are we going to be looking at that will be sufficient to drive that demand for alternatives and thus create the necessary investments? And that's a really hard question, and it's one that uh, we will be struggling with at the IMO as well for uh, for the foreseeable future, I think, and in particular over the next few months, because it brings us right to that fundamental difference between two key market-based measures, two approaches, if you will, uh, a bunker levy versus an emission trading system, where we, in the case of bunker levy, you simply set a price and hope it'll have the desired effect, but you don't really know because you know, modeling is always imperfect, as you, of course, always are intimately familiar with. Um, in, in the case of a trading system, you define reduction trajectory, and if you do that the right way, you implicitly create a steadily increasing demand for alternatives by making less and less uh, carbon emittable. But you don't know where the emission price is going to end up. So need, needless to say, stakeholders, depending on their perspective, are going to have very different u- views on what is preferable here. And these decisions are fundamentally going to shape the demand picture. And while we do know that the EU is rolling out an emission trading system, we do not yet know what IMO is going to decide to do on an international scale. Even though it's likely we'll see some kind of international carbon price towards the end of this decade, we really don't know exactly how it's going to look, when it's going to arrive. And how it's going to interact with whatever other regulations or other market-based measures that already are in place, such as, for instance, the EU thing. So the timeline and approach taken, it's going to shape the demand for the alternatives here. And it's going to be uh, kind of critical. It will, of course, inform the next generations of the reports and studies that uh, you will be in the driving seat, uh, seat for. So, uh, yeah, interesting times. 
Yeah, definitely interesting times. And uh, in terms of uh, the demand for alternatives, one of the things that we see and we state clearly in this year's report is that uh, shipping's future fuel market will be more diverse and will uh, depend on different energy sources and will have more interconnection between shipping industry and other industries on land as they need the same feedstocks as we in shipping would need for fuel. And then uh, this uh, fuel production will be more interconnected also with the regional energy markets, regional energy production production and regional industry. And uh, that leads to the conclusion that uh, the regulatory landscape maybe even becomes even more fragmented. Do you already see some indications for this? And uh, in, in that case, uh, what do they look like? Well, yes, yes, indeed. Um, uh, as, as already discussed, we you know we, we have the IMO, of course, as a key international regu- regulator of shipping. And uh, in an ideal world, we would have a common international framework, and that would satisfy everyone. But developments of regulations, they are in many ways uh, shaped by political pressures. And as that saying goes, all politics are local. So we end up with regional and national regulations playing increasingly important role due to fairly obvious political considerations. Now we have the EU and its impact, but we do see nation states doing local regulations as well. There's nothing new here in a sense because local regulations have always been a fact of life for the maritime sector, but we do seem to be seeing things picking up in a sense because, I mean, we have the EUK considering a shipping ETS. They have to go it alone post-Brexit, of course. Uh, We have China reportedly still considering a possible expansion of their market-based measure to shipping. We do have Norway with special cruise ship regulations in certain fjords. We have the US where domestic uh, GHG regulations keep being proposed in Congress. And we do have the um, the Inflation Reduction Act that's going to have some impact on the alternative fuel scene and so on and so forth. Now, the general impression I'm left with is that there is a desire to maintain a focus on the IMO, uh, but also at the same time, there is a desire, maybe sometimes by the same stakeholders, to also regulate nationally. And managing the interactions between all of these is, of course, an increasingly challenging for ship owners and operators. So this kind of brings us to how... How will all of this actually impact the operational profiles for ships? Uh, changing fuel landscape, how does that impact the way uh, ships do what ships do? So, I mean, what, what do you think it will mean for ship owners? Did your report come to any conclusions on how alternative fuels would change the operational profile of ships? Or shipping, rather? We haven't concluded, but there's, some things are clear, and uh, that uh, some of the new proposed fuels, they do have reduced energy density, especially uh, well, you can uh, never consider them without the storage tanks, so we, there is definitely a reduced energy density for the new fuels. So uh, in terms of decreasing energy density, so we have the, mo- the highest energy density, that's for fuel oils, that's uh, VLSFO, it's a very low sulfur fuel oil or MGO versions of uh, fuel oils. Then we have LNG, less than that. And then we have methanol and then ammonia, roughly equal in terms of energy density. And then we have even poorer is uh, liquefied hydrogen, then compressed hydrogen, and lastly, batteries. So when, what you get when you have reduced energy density uh, is that you you need more weight and more space on board to store the same amount of energy for propulsion. 
So uh, if if that's a big if you want to sail the exact same distance, then or in other words to have the same endurance of the ship, then you need to uh, you will lose cargo space. And conversely, if you do not wish to lose cargo space, then you will lose range or endurance. And there has to be some kind of balance that has to be struck in the in most cases. And sometimes perhaps more fre frequent bunkering uh, will be preferred rather than loss of cargo space, perhaps not. And it's not clear what will be um, preferred in general in the future. And in this case, I think there is a lot of there's a lot of opportunity for uh, different ship owners to get different uh, deals on plans and trade patterns uh, in different places around the world. We don't have a clear and general answer to this question. And I, and I guess that kind of brings us to the crux of the matter, your last point there. Uh, where should operators place their bets? Do, do we have clear recommendations? Or if not, can you kind of give us a brief rundown on main advantages and disadvantages of, of at least some fuel options that we're highlighting in our forecast? Uh, also, maybe say something about how we foresee future availability. It'd be great to get some uh, more details on that. Uh, well, it's uh, easy to get uh, whiplash from following the development with all these uh, new fuels. And um, well, first of all, uh, if we split it at the key side, uh, you know, the ship owner cares about uh, uh, these kinds of things. You have um, the type of fuel, the chemistry, the molecule. This uh, this determines how to build the ship, the sh engines, the tanks, the safety measures, and so on. And we have uh, we have uh, fuel oils, which can be uh, heavy fuel oil, very low sulfur fuel oil, MGO, which can be fossil, bio, or electro versions. And we can also have other biofuels such as uh, FAME, and they can they can be very easy to drop in. Very simple, uh, can be quite simple to drop in. And then we have uh, uh, another version is to have a liquefied methane, which can be fossil, bio, or electro versions. And these are trivial to drop in for existing LNG ships. Uh, however, these need more space than fuel oils. But historically, historically, there's been a lower price than for the uh, very low price for the fossil version of LNG. And then we can have uh, methanol, which can be fossil, bio, or electro versions which is uh, quite easy safety-wise, uh, but you need about twice the space as you do for fuel oils. So it's lower energy density. And then we have ammonia. That's, uh, that can be fossil, electro, uh, fossil or electro version. Or you can have a fossil with uh, carbon capture, which is called a blue ammonia. And of course, uh, toxicity is a major safety concern for ammonia, um, and you need uh, somewhat more space than uh, for ammonia than uh, for methanol. And then you can have a hydrogen liquid compressed or with a, a liquid organic hydrogen carrier. And for liquid and compressed hydrogen, there's a safety concern with explosive explosivity, and and also very low temperatures for liquid. And you need even more space than uh, for ammonia. You can have nuclear, which means uh, you have a main advantage in infrequent fueling, no bunkering uncertainty, no regulatory risk towards emissions, and low uncertainty towards fuel prices. But of course, you need the regulatory acceptance, which is not there yet, and you need the acceptance for entering ports and so on. You can also actually capture some CO2 on board and offload it to uh, hopefully 
storage for geological time. The main advantage of this is that you can avoid expensive new fuels or use less of them rather because you can actually blend in with bio or electrofuels and still capture CO2. So you can potentially go negative. That's a <laughs> well, that, that will cost you, of course. Um, but the disadvantages here are higher energy needs for capturing the CO2 and space needed for tanks for storing the CO2. And in essence, you're actually doing the reverse rocket equation. So you're gaining mass as you go uh, sail along. <laughs> and uh, secondly, of course, the ship owner cares about the price of the fuels. But I think rather it's uh, actually the price of the emission reduction you really care about that, enab that enables the ship to follow the regulations. Um, and thirdly, you, you care about the carbon factor of the purchased fuel, since nothing else matters than the well-to-wake emissions for a fuel. And the different fuels will have different carbon factors or emission reduction potential. Perhaps even different versions of the same carbon-neutral fuel can have different uh, carbon factors. And in the, in the end, you pay for this reduced emission. And of course, the capex of the ship is important. And there is an increasing uh, increasing cost going from fuel oil to methanol to ammonia to LNG to hydrogen in, in that order. And finally, you need to get the fuel. Will it be produced in large enough amounts for you? Will it be sold where you need it? Will someone else get it get there first? And it seems likely that there will be some time before there is a mature market uh, and uh, where you can confidently expect to buy uh, the fuel you need when you need it. And in, in the beginning, producers will probably only construct production plants and infrastructure after landing quite solid contracts or plans with customers. Well, so uh, what do you go for? Uh, well, it depends on ship type, space for tanks and so on, company ambitions, regions you're sailing in, contracts you're able to get for fuel and more. Uh, the, 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 this kind of a boring and uh, uh, not really satisfactory answer is that it seems prudent to go for fuel flexibility. So thank you very much for drawing our attention to that. It's been a real pleasure to have you on the show. Um, uh, I'll sure to be sure, make sure to get, have any questions uh, piped your way. And um, I look forward to talking to you again. So thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. One thing that's clear to me after this fascinating conversation with Eirik is that, and I guess this is no surprise, the future remains unclear. The fuel mix we'll be seeing for shipping depends strongly on decisions in the policy and regulatory spaces, the developments and future prices of technologies such as CCS, and not least the development and availability of the basic feedstocks such as clean energy and biomass. And crucial outcomes on many of these will be shaped by decisions yet to be made and changes yet to come in non-shipping arenas. At DNV, we believe that we are at a stage where it's necessary to hedge your bets. There is no obvious one solution at present. The future is fuel diverse and will be some time before we see clear winners and losers. So think fuel flexibility, think energy efficiency, driving consumption down is always a good idea, and be prepared for surprises in the coming years. Thank you for joining us for this episode. It's been great to dive into the detail of DNV's Maritime Forecast to 2050 with its lead author, Eirik Overum. 
We've covered some important topics, including collaboration, existing measures, and what the possible futures of shipping itself may actually look like. If you want to read more on this topic, you can download the report in its entirety and download it for free at dnv.com maritime hyphen forecast. You've been listening to the Maritime Impact Podcast from DNV with me, Eric Nyhus. Please join us for the rest of the series where we'll continue to analyze the latest regulations affecting shipping and speak to some of the leading voices in the industry. If you enjoyed the episode, please don't forget to give us a rating or a review. Thank you for listening.